Ladies and gentlemen, the title, Parents, Kids, Spouse, and Me, Who Comes First? is a very challenging topic. I'd like to address it this evening from a purely halachic perspective, but at the same time to try to speak on a practical level as well. At first glance, it seems to be a no contest. Parents, of course parents come first. As was just mentioned, there are obligations in the Torah. One of them is a very famous obligation, Kabeir esavicha v'esimecha. Honor your father and mother. Or as we read more recently, Ish imo v'oviv tiro. Every man must revere a mother and a father. There's no equivalent obligation in the 613 commandments regarding kids, spouse, certainly not me. So it seems to be a no contest that the parents come first. But it's not so simple. I'd like to focus the first part of our analysis on the words of Chazal, a Gemara in Kiddushin, Rashi quotes it in Chumash. Ish, a man. Ainli Ela Ish, a man. Isha Minayim, what about a woman? Kshu Omer Tiro, Harekan Shnai. Honoring a father and a mother apply Tiro, plural, to both men and to women. So why does the Torah use the expression ish, implying a man and not a woman? Answers the Gemara. Ish sipek biodo lasos. A man is able to fulfill, and therefore is obligated to fulfill, this mitzvah. Isha ein sipek biodo lasos. A woman is not able to fulfill this mitzvah. Why not? Referring to a woman who was married and has the responsibilities towards a husband which apparently take priority. Mm. So, if we stop right here, going back to our title, leave out the kids for the moment. But parents and spouse would seem the spouse comes first. In particular, with respect to a married woman. A married man, by implication, it's the other way around. The parent comes first. So it appear from a simple reading of this Gemara and Masech the Kiddushin on the Aflama base. However, I believe we have to spend some time in analyzing the precise parameters of this Jerusha's Chazal and see how it applies to us. Tosfus in Kiddushin, the Aflamid asked the following question. The obligation of a woman that her earnings go to her husband is only of rabbinic nature. 
And here we are quoting a verse in the Torah itself. Nonetheless, the woman is not found near her father or mother, but is rather found near her husband. And because she's found near her husband, she's unable to fulfill the mitzvah of kibbutz avayim. Now wait a minute. I just said kibbutz avayim. But the words of the Chachamim have reference to mora avayim. Ish imo v'aviv tiro. The Gemara tells us in Masech the Kiddushin, what is kavod? Kavod is giving physical assistance to a parent. Food and drink, helping to, to dress, etc. This is kibbutz avayim. But does not say that a woman is exempt from kibbutz avayim. It says she's exempt from mora avayim. What is mora? Reverence. So the Gemara tells us what mora is. The Gemara says, mora you don't sit in his place and you don't contradict his words why should a woman's married status prevent her from fulfilling mora to the contrary once she's married she moves out of the house it's much easier for her not to sit in her father's seat She's miles away. It's much easier for her not to contradict his words. She never sees him. So why then is the exclusion of a married woman found in the context of Mora as opposed to Kibbut? So, since Rashi quotes this in Chumash and Pasha's Kedoshim, the super commentaries in Rashi wrestle with this question. Rabbi this famous commentary on Rashi, tells us that although the simple reading of the Talmud refers to mora, as he puts it, im eino inyan lemora, doesn't pertain to mora, teneu inyan lekavod, refers rather to kavod. So a woman, in fact, is required to fulfill mora avaim, and is only exempted from kibbut avaim, because she's simply not around in order to give honor to her father and her mother. This is what Tosus means. In a famous tshuva, Rav Moshe Feinstein, Igres Moshe, Arachayim, Chelek Aleph, Simen Kuf, Nun Ches, says that a woman is required to be in the home of her husband. That is the very essence of marriage. As the Torah tells us, the base Isha Nadara, Marriage means when the woman enters into her husband's home. And therefore, since she has to be in her husband's home helping him, it becomes impossible for her to offer the proper kibbutz to her father and her mother because she's simply not there. Must a woman stay home the whole day? Can't move? Must she be forgive the expression, at his beck and call, should in fact the husband come in and he needs something from his wife, she has to sit there all day, 
so that he should be able to come in and get what he wants when he wants it? Is that really the case? I don't think so. Perhaps things have changed. They change in time, by time and place, as we shall see. Perhaps since we have now entered into the age of cell phones, so the woman can spend a lot of time with her father and mother, if they're in the general area, and she need not fear that she'll be unable to discharge her responsibilities towards her husband, because he knows he needs something, he'll call her on the cell phone. And if he needs it a little bit uh, in a timely fashion, he'll give her some lead time. I need this at a certain time. And she'll be properly notified. In the interim, she can spend more time with her father and her mother. Did I say that things change? This sounds reformist. Things change from generation to generation. I repeat, yes, things change. Some things cannot change, but some things can and in fact do change. It seems, based upon the Gemara with the Tosfis, that it was traditional in the years gone by for couples upon marriage to live near the man's parents. In the old days, when they made their living agriculturally, working in the fields, so presumably the couple would live near the home and field and source of sustenance of the man's family to be able to continue earning a livelihood. And therefore, the Gemara implies and Tosa states that the couple is near his parents. He can therefore fulfill Kibbut Av Va'em more readily. He's not exempted. Whereas she, being far away from her parents, is by definition exempted from the mitzvah of Kibbut Av Nowadays, things are different. Everything is different. Just to give an example of how things are different. In Europe, it was traditional the other way around. When a couple would get married, they would often move near her parents, who would provide support. Various tshuvas uh, are written about this. But even the wife-husband relationship has changed dramatically for what we read in the classical svarim. What are her responsibilities to her husband? Well, we are taught that a woman has certain specific responsibilities. Take care of the house, take care of her husband. But these change from generation to generation. For example, one of the obligations which a woman has by Talmudic law, and this obligation is a very personal and intimate one, we are taught in the Gemara and the Rishonim that she cannot have a uh, surrogate do the work. Some of her wifely duties in the home can be done by somebody else. Taking care of the house, cooking, baking, doing the laundry. So 
if she hires someone else, so she's relieved from these responsibilities. But one of the responsibilities, to pick one, that she cannot give over to somebody else, for good reason, is marchetzes yodov viraglov. Literally, she washes his hands and his feet. Now, we have quite a large crowd here this evening. Uh, I'll, talk, I'll turn to the men. There are more men here than women right now. Is there a man who is a recipient of this kind of a uh, wifely responsibility as, as, as found in the, in, in the Talmud? I'm not discussing if a man is sick or something, some kind of emergency. But, you know, Baruch Hashem, we have a whole different system. A man goes into the shower by himself and comes out by himself. So, can a man demand that his wife should wash his hands and feet? It's in the Talmud. The Talmud never changes. One of the fundamentals of the Rambam. So I believe that such a demand would be outrageous. Things change. Let me give one more example. The Rambam, in Hilchos Ishus, Perik Yud Gimel, Halacha Yud Aleph, is describing the fact that a woman should conduct herself in a private, modest fashion. She should basically stay at home. But she's entitled to leave her house once in a while. And a man should not be overbearing in this regard. To quote the Rambam literally, verbatim, She can leave the house once or twice a month according to what's needed. Now I'll turn to the ladies. Is there a woman? You've already used your monthly pass tonight. So, so I was told that some Yeshiva Bacha got married he was a classicist. He wanted to tell his wife, you can only leave your house once or maximum twice a month. So she used her monthly pass and went to Rabbi Yashif. And he said, he called in the house and said, are you out of your mind? The Rambam, the Rambam. He said, things change, right? So it's important to know that some things do change, whereas particular halachas perhaps do not. So now, going back to our original question. According to the, the Gemara statement that a woman who's married is exempt from kibbut avaim, as the Mizrahi understands it, though it says Mora really refers to kibbut, it all depends on the circumstances. It depends where they're living. If they're living near the parents, then the child has an obligation of kibbut avaim. And he has to somehow juggle it with responsibilities to a spouse. If the child is very far away, then by definition, the ability to fulfill kibbutz avaim is limited. Yes, it's limited, both for a married woman and for a married man. There's really no fundamental difference. The Talmud uses the example of a woman being, a woman being exempt, as Tosas explains, because they weren't living near her parents. Apparently, they were presumably living near his parents. And if it's the other way around, it would be the other way around. If they're living near neither parent, so they would be there exempt fundamentally from the keyboard of both father and mother. So it appeared 
according to this understanding of that of the Aureliyom Mizrahi. The Marami Prague, in his classic commentary, the Gurarye on Chumash and Rashi, rejects the Mizrahi, even though the Mizrahi seems to be supported by Tosus and many Rishon. He says, no, we have no right to take it out of its context. It says, Ish, Imo, Va'aviv, Tiro. The limitation refers to Mora, refers to reverence. But of course, the question becomes, why is living far away from a parent prevent a married woman from a, a, a fulfilling the mitzvah of reverence, of Tiro? <laughs> That's a good question. So Marami Prax is as follows. Umasha over al dvara v'loshkiach aleim who over moro. What does that mean? Amala avia hachileni v'hi ena osa he overes moro. If a father says, "Give me to eat," and she doesn't do it, it's not merely she's not doing the kibud of aim by not giving her father food. But if she violates his explicit command, this is a violation of Mora Ha'av as well. Says the Marami Prague, a married woman can be put in a very difficult position. That's exactly the title of today's shir. Parents and spouse. Who comes first? Who comes first? So according to the Marami Prague, the Torah is telling us who comes first. Her spouse comes first. And therefore she is exempt from the, the obligation which normally exists not to contradict the words of a parent by what we'll call disobedience, not feeding him, because she's obligated to take care of her, of her husband. What's the nature of this obligation? So there are some who claim that just as there is an obligation of mora ava'im, we'll call obedience, not to contradict one's words, the words of the parent by, by uh, not obeying him, so too there's an obligation of mora habal. Mora habal, an obligation to listen, to obey, a husband. Indeed, the Rambam tells us in Hilchos Ishus, Perek Tesvav, Halacha Chaf, V'chein Tzivu Chachamim Al HaIsha Shetei Mechaberes Hesbala B'Yosemidai She should honor her husband greatly. V'yia Lo Oleha Mora The magic word of Mora that there should be some type of reverence she should do everything based on what he says. He should be in her eyes a prince or a king. And this would indicate as a concept of mora habal, which presumably trumps, overrules the of the obligation of mora avaim. That's how some suggest. <clears throat> Is there really such an obligation? It appears to me that this is not the case. There is no such obligation. We do find 
in certain original sources, even stronger phraseology with respect to the husband-wife relationship. We find, just not long ago, learned about the laws of Pesach, less than a month ago, and there we talk about, according to our text in Mesef Tapsachim, Tav Kuf Chesem and Aleph, Isha, Eitzel, Baila, Eina Tzricha Haseva, she's not required to, to recline, why not? Why not? So the, the Rashbam says, Mesha Emas Bala. Literally, she has fear of her husband. Is this a halachic requirement? May I suggest, not at all. There's no such halachic requirement whatsoever. It's simply describing a reality which existed in certain parts of our society. And Allah is sensitive to the norms of each and every time and place. How do I know? Because the Gemara there tells us that if Isha Chashuva, which is an important woman, then she is required to recline in the presence of her husband. Comes the Ramah in Hilchos Pesach, going back to the Mordechai, was lived centuries before him. Nashim shelanu kulan chashuvos. Today, all women are important women. What do you mean important women? There's no longer emas bala oleo. That's what it means. That is true in real life. We know it's true in real life, with very rare exceptions, which are terrible exceptions. And therefore, women are in fact to this day exempt from the mitzvah of Hasebah. So that's the case. There's no, there's no such halacha as emas habal. And there's no such real din even as mora habal. Mora is a step down. It's reverence, not fear. So what's, what's it all about? Why is a married woman in particular exempt So I saw one of the Svarim, a recent Sefer called uh, Kvod Horim, who asks the question on the Marami Prague. According to him, it would appear that the reason why a woman is not able to fulfill the mitzvah of, of Mora Ava'im, and she's required to, in effect, disobey her father and mother in order to maintain what we'll call in our language Shalom Bayis marital bliss and harmony and peace. He asked the obvious question. If that's the case, why is it limited to a woman? Isha is exempt. It should apply equally to a man. A man also has responsibilities in a marriage. The Gemara tells us in Masech the Yavamas, Ha'oyves ishto kegufo fa'machavda yosem igufo. He's required to love his wife as he loves himself and to honor her even more than he honors himself. Doesn't this also stand in the way of the fulfillment of mora ava'im on the part of the husband? This is a question which he raises against the Marami Prague. 
I'd like to suggest the following answer to this question. We speak about the fact that a person is required to obey a parent. Is it really true? It's not kibbut. Kibbut is only giving physical services. But perhaps it's moral. If you disobey, you're contradicting their words. There is a Shuvas Maharik, a famous Shuvah, there are more quotes in, that in certain cases a child is not required to obey a father and mother, such as in the context of Shiduchim, of the choice of a marriage partner. And the Maharik has an expression, and I quote, the it's not found in the Talmud, this particular idea of obedience. This is how many understand the Maharik. There's no obligation whatsoever to obey a parent. Only to give physical service is covered. Not to contradict explicitly the words of a parent. But disobedience does not rise to a level of contradicting the words of the parent. <clears throat> However, the Chazonish in Yeridea, Simon Kuf Memtes of Cotton Ches, says no. Says no. A person must obey a parent. Obedience is listening to his words. Disobedience is contradicting his words. What about the Marik? I quote, Sheha'av tzorich levatel ritzono mipnei ritzon beno b'chihai gavna. The reason why the son need not obey a parent is because the parent is required to, how should we say it, levatel, to cancel out his will in the face of the will of his son in such a circumstance. And therefore, the son is not required to obey the parent in this fashion, just as a parent would not be, a son would not be required to give gifts, all his money, to his father, even if one holds Michel, Michel Ben, or as I've said it, a father tells a son, Spend the whole day walking around the block. Just walk around the block all day. You're not required to obey. Because the father's request is unreasonable. An unreasonable request, as a chazanish, need not be obeyed by the child. This has tremendous ramifications of the laws of Shiduchim, but we're not going there right now. Where did the chazanish get it from? So he quotes no source. Presumably he gets it based upon a svara, upon logic. May I suggest that perhaps the source for this din is precisely the halacha we were learning until now. When the Torah teaches, ish and not isha, what the Torah is telling us is it's not reasonable for a parent to expect the married daughter to obey the father and mother because it's going to cause her major problems in her shalom bias with her husband. In a society in which a woman is subservient 
to a husband, the same conflict would not exist so much with respect to a married man. Hence, the Talmud phrases it that a woman is exempt once she marries. The man would not enjoy a similar exemption because presumably, at least in those days, it would not interfere too much with his shalom bias if he would listen to obey the words of, of his parents. But in point of fact, there's no fundamental difference between man and woman. It's just a particular example which is given by the Torah based upon the society of the Zman, Zman Kabbalah Satoru. And I would think in today's society, it in fact would apply to men and women equally. And therefore, to return finally to the first question, parents and spouse, who comes first? The answer is, it depends. What is reasonable? If a parent makes a reasonable request, then the child, whether male or female, should obey. If it's an unreasonable request, because it impinges on the shalom bias, then the child, male or female, should not obey. Now, of course, it's impossible to give details in each and every case. But I want to give one example where I take exception to something which was written in one of the recent svaro. We know that if someone loses a relative, they are exempted from all the positive commandments, Mishamesu Mut Olafanov, is Potomikola Mitzvos, because they're busy taking care of the Tsarchiames of the needs of the deceased, a close relative. So I saw in one of the recent svarim, we suggest that this exemption does not apply to a married woman who loses a parent. Because after all, Rishus Acherem Olel, she is required to take care of the needs of her husband, and therefore she's exempted from giving this honor to her recently deceased parent, and therefore the exemption does not apply to her. I don't believe this psaac is correct. I believe, as I said before, that we have a measure of what's reasonable and what's un unreasonable. Any husband who would attempt to prevent his bereaved wife from involving herself completely in the difficulties upon the uh, passing of a father and mother is, to my mind, making an unreasonable request. She has no obligation whatsoever to obey this request of a husband, and therefore she is exempt from fulfilling the mitzvahs just as a single woman or a married man, or a single man for that matter, is exempt from fulfilling the mitzvahs in such an extreme situation. But let us not limit ourselves to this extreme situation. What happens if a parent is sick, is in an acute situation? Can a husband say, don't visit your father in the hospital. Who's going to make me dinner? Now that's an unreasonable request if I ever heard one. In my mind, this, the man has to be taken care of. We need something like Ravel Yashem to tell him off. But, but in any event, it's an unreasonable request. 
and the woman is not required to adhere to this request. She should run to the hospital to take care of her father, and her husband will manage for himself. If Khalila Vachas is a, a dispute between a husband and the wife in such a case, like all other halachic disputes, it goes to a rav. Here in Phelon, you're blessed with such a, a chosh of a rav. I hope it never comes to pass. I hope that the, the, the noble example of the rav or the rebbe in this community is enough to teach everyone how one conducts life properly. Someone should realize on his or her own what is appropriate. These are very, very important uh, points. Now we go to the next part of the discussion. We've spoken until now about parents and spouse. Who comes first? What about parents and kids? This is what the Rav called before the sandwich generation. Parents living longer, Baruch Hashem, we sometimes find these clashes. Truth is, this problem exists in its most extreme form when the children are younger and with respect to a woman. Because the woman is the one, traditionally, who is required to take care of her young children. Now I'm aware of the fact that in certain parts of society the women are either unwilling or unable to do so and they're going to work full time, they're not home, there are surrogates who are taking care of their little children. Although it's not today's topic, we should point out this is not an ideal. Ideally, a woman who's blessed with children should be the one to rear them, to take care of them. So much so, and another famous tshuva, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, or Chaim Chelik Dalat Simen Memtes, explains this is the reason why the Torah exempted women from mitzvah seishas mangrama and from Talmud Torah, because they are the ones who are best equipped to take care of their young. So once again, what do you do if you're in the sandwich generation? And once again, the answer is the same. There can be no single answer, this or that. Each and every situation must be judged on its own merits. Can a father and a mother routinely expect of their child, particularly their daughter with little children, but even a son, and even if the children are somewhat grown, to sort of abandon their own children and to take care of the needs of, of themselves, of the parents, the father and mother? By and large, once again, that's an unreasonable request. Everyone knows that a child moves out of the parent's home and is now required to set up their own home and to take care of their children. However, once again, there are extreme situations when a child must run to take care of a parent. Not Khalil Vachas, only in the case of, of Aninus. But we gave another example before of illness. That often happens in the, we call the sandwich generation when the parent was living longer but is unfortunately in, in ill health. So here too, there's so many different specifics. Is it an acute situation or is it a chronic long-term situation? In an acute situation, I believe the parent has to drop everything and run to take care of a parent 
of their own parents in the hospital or whatever it may be in the house. What do you do with your own children? You find someone to take care. You find your neighbor, you find your friend, some other relative, an uncle and an aunt, somebody. Because you have an immediate responsibility acutely to take care of, of a parent who is, in, who is in need. Once again, we cannot give specific halachic guidelines in each and every case. There's so many variables. Is there somebody else? In other words, if I'm required to take care of my parents and I have little children, well, maybe I have an older sibling whose children are already grown and they can take a greater share of the responsibilities. It depends upon location. Can I just leave my children for a little while or if I'm from, from, from 6,000 miles away? We all know cases where people drop everything and they run to take care of, of parents who have an acute situation and people just sort of manage. The neighbors help out. I'm sure it's a community like this where we know what it means to help out neighbors. So every situation is different. But the principle is you are required to give covered physical service to your parents who need, need it when they're not well and to obey the requests of parents who ask for your services when it is reasonable. Whether it is or is not will clearly depend upon uh, the specifics of the situation. If one is in doubt, once again, you have a wonderful Rav, he will give you proper guidance in this respect. Finally, me. Parents, kids, spouse, and me. Who comes first? <clears throat> we already spoke about it a little bit with respect to a father and a mother, that yes, you are required to obey a father and mother who make reasonable requests, and you put the me second and the father and mother first. But if the parents make unreasonable requests, as we read before from the Chazonish, you're not required to obey these requests. And yes, you come first. There's nothing wrong with saying that. A person has to sometimes say, I come first. An unreasonable request is being made for me. Don't enter into this career. It could be sometimes unreasonable. Sometimes it's reasonable. Shaila, go to the rough. Every case is different. So too, with respect to a spouse, where, where does me fit in? Where does a person's own uh, uh, desires fit in? We mentioned before that a married woman is, has a concept of Sarah Melech treating a a husband as, as a prince and a king and, and having some certain amount of reverence for what he, what he wishes. Remember, the expression of the Rambam is Tzivu Chachamim. Tzivu Chachamim in Rambam does not mean an absolute commandment. It means it's a good idea. Chachamim said this is the way it should be done. But of course it should be done in a proper way when the husband is asking for something, which is reasonable. So too the same Rambam and the same place that Nuchos Yishu says, one from the Gemara we mentioned a few minutes ago. That's also Tzibu Chachamim. What are the precise parameters of that? Mechavda Yosemigufo means that if a man has a certain amount of money and he either spends it on himself or on his wife, he should spend it on his wife. That's what it means. Mechavda Yosemigufo. Although Kagufo, as the Mephoshim point out, you cannot expect a person to love someone more than he loves himself. That's in his heart. But in deeds, you have to put your wife's needs ahead of your own. Mechavda Yosemigufo. So there are situations where the spouse comes first. 
But there are also situations where the me comes first. And again, it's impossible to give specific guidelines. Each and every case is different. If it's a shalom bias problem over this issue, you have the same rav, you can come to him and he'll tell you what's reasonable and what's unreasonable. What about kids? Who comes first? Very little is written about this because an obligation towards children, this is a Gemara Masech, the Kiddushin of very specific examples. Brismila, Pidyan this is not going to be much of a conflict. I'd like to quote as a paradigm the Gemara on that daf with respect to Talmud Torah. Now, Talmud Torah, as we know, every single man is required to, to study Torah whenever it's possible, but it's also an obligation, that a person should see to it that the son learns Torah. So now we have a, a good case to analyze. Who comes first? The father's Talmud Torah or the son's Talmud Torah? Here we have a case in point. Who comes first? So the Gemara tells us in Masech Tikidushim, who kodem libno? Me, the me comes first. The father's obligation of studying Torah has priority over that of his son. However, if his son is Zoriz Umamulach, his son is an exceptional Talmud Chacham, and due to financial constraints, only one of them can learn Torah, either the father or the son, the son comes first. Talmud Miskayim, Rashi explains. What does that mean? I believe that this is a prat, a detail, which can teach us about the cloud, about the generality. <clears throat> what has priority that which is the most important for the family and in effect for Klal Yisrael? Is it your spiritual advancement or that of your son? All things being equal, you come first. Even if it's in Torah, there's some kind of a priority for an individual over others. But, if in the broader scheme of things, the son's Torah is more important, he'll be able to study better, and he'll remember, you're going to forget, etc., etc. His Torah comes first. You have to give up from your learning in order to allow your son to become a greater Talmud Chach. This, I believe, is a paradigm. Generally speaking, an individual has a responsibility towards himself to see to it that he advances spiritually. It's difficult when you have other responsibilities. When the Rambam tells us in Ilchus Talmud Torah that every, per, every man is required to study Torah, he, no matter if he's rich, or if he's poor, or if he's old, or if he's young, or if he's healthy, or if he's sick, no matter what, what's the very last line of the Rambam? Afilu Baal Isha Ubanim. man has responsibilities to his wife and to his children. These are fundamental responsibilities. Despite that fact, he's required to study Torah. So we see there's a different kind of a sandwich that the Rambam is speaking about. Taking care of, of a wife and of children and taking care of your own spiritual well-being by studying Torah. And it's obviously, it's a balance. He didn't say disregard your wife and disregard your children. You have to find some time to juggle, to balance, and to study Torah yourself as well. And I believe the same is true of mothers and daughters. This is a gender-blind description. So in conclusion, the most important thing is balance. To balance your respective responsibilities to a parent, 
to a child, to a spouse, and yes, to yourself. But even more fundamental is the realization that each and every one of us has responsibilities. Yes, I repeat, responsibilities to our parents, to our children, to our spouses, and yes, even to, to ourselves. And I emphasize the word responsibilities because in today's world, there's much preoccupation not with responsibilities, but rather with what we'll call rights. What am I entitled to? What's in it for me? What's my entitlement? I'm entitled to this, that, or the other thing. Not what are my responsibilities, my, my, my duties, my chiyuvim. That's the major problem which exists in today's society. There's a problem in marriage. As you have death, the rights in Michtav Melio. If a couple, when they're married, each one wants to give to the other more than to him or herself, they will enjoy marital bliss and stability and harmony. But if they're takers rather than givers, their marriage will be a very difficult one. Because individuals looking in it for themselves are not likely to understand what, 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 anything that we're describing today. The whole assumption of the shear this evening is that there are responsibilities. So therefore we can say parents, kids, spouse, and notice that me was put last by the individuals who made the title. Today's world, we live in a me first or sometimes even a me only society, which is terrible. So while we are balancing our respective responsibilities to parents, kids, spouse, and me, let us understand that we were put into this world to discharge our responsibilities, our obligations. The Mesilis Yisharim in the very first paragraph explains that the fund most fundamental principle is a person should know what is his or her obligation and responsibility in his world. Not ba'olam, That means no two people are living in the same world. There's a whole different set of responsibilities with respect to the society, with respect to the family members, as our parents, kids, spouse, etc. Every situation is different. Everyone is a ba'olamo in his or her own world. And in that world, we have to figure out what are our obligations. Chovaso. Chovaso to members of our families, as we understand. Chovaso to, to the Rabboni Shalom. This requires a balancing act. But as, as I said, we have to go back to the beginning and recognize that we have obligations and responsibilities which we try to carry out to the best of our abilities. Let us all internalize these critical, critical lessons which are unchanging. The details change, but the timeless principles do not. And the schus of our attempt to properly balance these critical responsibilities, each and every one in his or her own world, Chovasoba Olamo, May we privilege to establish proper families, ish v'isha, shechina shruya b'neim, and in that tzchus, may we be privileged to witness quickly the ultimate hashros hashechina b'binyan b'shem miglish b'mher of yameinu. Amen. Okay, I believe that our distinguished guests have agreed to take uh, questions from the audience, so if Anyone has a question, either or, for Rav Willig in talking about the interpersonal relationships, or more important, the key word, interpersonal.
personal responsibilities. All right? And second of all, if you have any question of uh, Rav Shechta Shlita, so uh, now would be the time. Uh, you can certainly catch them on the way out after my riv, but... Sure. In terms of uh, responsibilities, responsibilities to parents, aren't the in-law children so how can you say the wife says she's mashub with the husband, both of them are mashub with the Question. The question is, if an individual is, has an obligation to honor a parent-in-law, then how can we say that uh, there is an exemption for a married woman to, uh, uh, to, to honor her parents? After all, her husband is required to honor his in-laws who are her parents. That's an excellent question. The Chochmas Adam, the Chay Adam, asks that question directly. And he attempts, attempts to prove from here that the obligation to honor an in-law, a parent-in-law, is not equivalent to the obligation to honor a parent, but rather as you would honor another honorable individual in the community. So it's a much lower level. That's what he suggests to, to answer that question. It's based upon a Gemara and Masech, the Kiddushin, Sha'ata, you and someone else are obligated to honor another individual. So your question is a very, is a very good question, and the different answers to that question. Uh, but uh, let me say that I feel that it's important that we speak about uh, our respect for in-laws. It was not my direct topic. Thank God they gave me a break. I spoke about parents, kids, spouses. No one spoke about in-laws directly. But uh, the truth is that uh, honoring and respecting in-laws is something which is... Uh, Unfortunately, not a properly practiced in many parts of our society. I have people calling their in-laws by the first name. Uh, it it, it uh, shakes me up. I don't know. <laughs> Something wrong with me? I just, just I hear it. They just refer to the father-in-law by his, just like this, by the, like a friend. When I grew up in my father's steeple, you couldn't refer to anybody who was a generation earlier by the first name. I put a reb or a rav or something in front. I don't know what's going on in today's world. But thank you very much for bringing that point up. It's a very important point. Can you, please. I'm sorry, Rick Willett. Um, you, would, you would discuss uh, briefly the role of change in halakha, and you would illustrate it via the changing role of, of the obligations of women, etc. Isn't it um, something of a jump to go from, from there to saying that when the Pusuk itself, it's a limud from the Pusuk, isn't, it, isn't that a, more of a, a larger statement to say that that's Kibulabdavka? Uh, you're probably right, it's a larger statement. Maybe it's not even correct. It's my suggestion. Uh, it's only a suggestion that I'm making that when it says in the Chazal, Ish Imov Avav Tiro, to exclude a woman, the reason that the woman is excluded is because of her responsibilities to, to her husband. Those responsibilities themselves can change given the changes in our society. And similarly, the obligations of a man, of a married man, uh, could change based on, on circumstances. And perhaps, if my last thesis is correct, which is the biggest jump, the point which the Chazanish makes, namely that in general, an individual's responsibility to obey a parent is limited by what's reasonable. What's not reasonable may itself be derived from that Russian Chazal. 
But are you correct? It's, 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 a, it's a suggestion that I make. I'm not 100% sure it's true.